0: It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm, I did drive down from Chicago last night, and I have nothing to do with the weather. <laughs> I pro- it was actually warmer there than it is here, so don't blame me. Um, well, it is good to be together, and it's really great to hear about what God has been doing here uh, at this location, uh, at this church uh, with you. Uh, and it's really great to hear about this new uh, body of believers that are gathering together even this morning, uh, to worship together for the first time. Praise the Lord for what He's doing here. Uh, and we're grateful to be uh, partners in ministry. I'm grateful for Tommy, all of the things he said are are true. Yes, we started together, we even interviewed on the same day. Uh, that was the first time we we met. So uh, really great. And yes, I really do have five kids. Um, so and it's it's awesome. Nine, seven, five, three. And eight months. So we have ceased using the word busy and we just say we are abundant and full. <laughs> and it's a mindset shift and we love being parents. And uh, our, we send our my wife sends her greetings and our church uh, in Wheaton does as well. Well, if you've got your, your Bibles open, we are in Mark chapter 12. Uh, Verses 38 through 44 this morning, I'll be referring back to the text quite often, so you can leave your Bibles open or your phones or whatever you're using this morning. Well, economy uh, can be defined as the wealth and resources of a country or region, especially in terms of the production and consumption of goods and services can also be defined as the careful management of available resources. You can think of something like an economy car. Uh, Maybe that's the careful management uh, of goods and resources available, I don't know. Um, But in that first bigger picture of an economy, um, you see a system uh, by which goods and services are exchanged, uh, perhaps through purchase or trade, and therefore the value of whatever currency is used will vary based on the health of an economy. And now we have come to the end of my knowledge of economy. Uh, So thanks for listening. Um, But why would I begin that way? Um, Well, because in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus has been talking since the beginning, since he first showed up on the scene in Mark's Gospel, he has been talking about his kingdom. That's a major theme through the Gospel of Mark. Um, There were those who thought his kingdom was going to be an earthly kingdom and and therefore might have required some sort of currency. Uh, There might have been some sort of exchange rate in in Jesus' earthly kingdom had it been that. Um, Even the disciples had wondered what would make them important and and valuable in Jesus' kingdom. Uh, They might have been wondering, what will be considered uh, of of most worth and of most value in the economy of Jesus's kingdom? What do I need to amass and collect, uh, to put in my bank account, so to speak, that will make me have value and be worthy in Jesus's kingdom? Well, as many of you probably know, even based on your own experience, uh, Jesus has a way of redefining our human expectations, right? I mean, you think of the way that Jesus has redefined your life and redefined the way that you think about the, and see the world. Um, just in Mark, in Mark's gospel, even in chapter 12, Jesus has made many redefinitions or clarifications. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, you can look back up and just scan through the text. You can see that for the religious elite, who were quite comfortable in their own system of religion, uh, in their own exchange of religious goods and services, he defi- redefined for them the purpose of uh, of even paying taxes to Caesar. You'll remember Jesus's words: "Render to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God's to God what is God's." And that was a shift in their thinking. Um, he defined the reality of the resurrection for those who didn't believe that such things could happen. Um, he defined for them, the nature and summary of the Old Testament law. When he was asked about that, he, he said, it's, it's basically to love God and love your neighbor. And how is Jesus even able to make all of these definitive redefinitions? How is he able to do that? Well, he's able to do that because he has the authority as the son of God to do so. And this morning, as we look at the end of Mark chapter 12, We come to actually the conclusion of Mark's telling of Jesus' public ministry. This is particularly important as we're starting to think about resurrection weekend and Good Friday and Easter Sunday morning. Um, Jesus from here, from our scene that we're going to look at this morning, will make a shift and turn. He closes down, so to speak, his public teaching. He's going to leave the temple where he's been doing all of his teaching and head towards the cross. And so this is the last scene that Mark records in Jesus' public ministry, and it comes by way of a warning and a lesson. He he makes one final redefinition before he leaves this temple uh, where he's been teaching for this entire day. He takes all of what we think has value and worth, even in a religious context, and he flips it on his head, and he says, actually, here's what the economy of my kingdom is looks like. And it's not what you think. You see, we're tempted to value and prioritize all that is visible, even in a religious setting, uh, even in religious devotion. But Jesus says, just wait a minute, not, not so fast. And where we're tempted to live according to a definition of abundance, that's, let's face it, is largely defined by our culture, this culture of more Jesus says, let's examine what more really looks like uh, in, the, in light of the gospel. And so with that in mind, our, our aim this morning is to, to let Jesus' warning to the scribes to beware of these people, and this lesson about this poor widow, to let the warning and the lesson shine a light in our hearts and our, our, the way we think and the way that we see, the way that we seek to live. We want to let that light shine within Jesus' definition of the economy of his kingdom, the economy of the gospel. And so first, we're gonna look at this warning that Jesus gives about the scribes in verses 38 to 40. And we're gonna call this the economy of religion. And second, we'll look at Jesus's lesson as he gives this uh, observation based on the poor widow in verses 41 through 44. And we're gonna call this the economy of the gospel. So first, the economy of religion uh, in uh, verses 38 through 40. So what do we mean by this? Well, at its core, the word religion means to bind or to bind back. Uh, if, as we think of, about God and a person's relationship with God, we can be religiously devoted in a way that we are attempting to bind ourselves back to him. You think of many other world religions that try to earn favor or buy favor through good deeds or even money or things like that. Uh, we know that we're, we're separated from God and we need to be brought back to him, bound back to him in some way. Well, these scribes who Jesus says to beware of were very religious men. Uh, Jesus and the early church opposed these guys often and very adamantly. You can think back to Matthew chapter 23 if you're familiar with that passage where Jesus gives this list of woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, the, these men were very practiced in their form of religion, binding themselves back to God, which is why Jesus made them very uncomfortable. Um, they had their set definitions of everything within their system. These guys were the recorders and copyists of all the official religious data within the temple setting, and they controlled—they—they they controlled what was valuable, what had worth. They set those values within their own religious economic system. And Jesus tells us right from the beginning to beware of them. Now, why? Why? Because he gives us this little list, uh, a little profile of what they might look like. So first he says, well, they like to walk around in long robes. Now, why should we uh, beware of that? Didn't everybody back then wear robes? Well, yes, uh, sort of. Not quite like these robes. These robes were long flowing robes, probably white, bleached white. Uh, so very bright and noticeable, whereas most people walking around those days would have worn, worn, worn colorful clothes or, or even dark robes. These would have stood out. And so wearing this kind of robe would have set them apart as distinguished scholars or, or men of importance. Um, it's kind of like uh, on the, the Friday of a high school football game, um, I asked in the first service, let's see how you guys do, um, football, high school football important around here? Same response. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it depends on where you went to high school. Um, I grew up in the Atlanta area in in Georgia and high school football is a big deal. It's not quite like Texas football, Um, but every Friday of game day, all of the football players, what did they wear? Jerseys or letterman jackets. You remember Letterman jackets? And that was a distinguishing feature, a piece of clothing that you got to wear to set you apart on game day. That guy's important. That person's important. They're going to play in the game tonight. Um, Now, just a word of of warning. If you are out of high school and still hanging on to that Letterman jacket, (laughs) it's probably time to let that go, okay? That's free. All right, Um, so these robes, though, would have been like their spiritual letterman jackets. They let everybody know, you need to pay attention to me. Now, they also liked greetings in the marketplace. Well, we might say also, what's, what's wrong with that? Well, when, you know, when I go to the grocery store or, or see you around town, aren't we supposed to greet each other and say hi to each other? Of course, you, you should do that. If you don't do that, you should do that. Um, but what's meant here is really more in the title of the greeting. So let's say you're bagging groceries at the grocery store, and you, would you like paper or plastic? And one of these guys comes through, or let's say it's a judge uh, in our context. You, if you misaddressed them and failed to call them your honor, they would have corrected you. And this is what is meant by they liked to be greeted in this way, uh, in this type of way, in the marketplace, Um, They wanted to be greeted properly and with esteem, and they demanded it of everyone. They wanted the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts. These were considered the first seats. In the synagogues, they would have been prominently featured in front of the congregation. At banquets, uh, they would have been seated as distinguished guests, These are just some of the reasons, though, that Jesus said to beware of them. Because what does this do? It really reveals their hearts. They were in it for the notoriety. But then, in verse 40, the the profile of the scribes takes an even darker turn. Uh, Throughout Scripture... God does give great attention to the most vulnerable in society, like orphans and widows and sojourners. And actually, after this sermon, we're going to take up an offering this morning for orphan care and for adoption. Uh, And so keep that in mind. Um, But there's commandment after commandment uh, throughout Scripture to care for the most vulnerable among us, uh, as well as warnings that God is the defender of these people and he will avenge those who exploit them. God will do that. And widows are at the forefront of that vulnerable group. And so what is meant here in this text by uh, the scribes devouring the home of the widow, it's, it's a little bit unclear, but it seems at minimum, the scribes were taking advantage of these widows. They were draining them of their resources, likely monetary resources. You see, scribes were dependent on the gifts uh, of worshipers or of benefactors for their livelihood. And so what Jesus means here is likely in, re- in reference to some kind of embezzlement or financial abuse that exploited the generosity of those who were already the most needy among them. They were taking where they should have been giving. Instead of protecting, they were destroying and these long, pretentious prayers that Jesus is talking about that they prayed, uh, are, he's actually condemning them for this practice because they were using them to prop themselves up in the eyes of the people so that they likely wouldn't notice the other improprieties that were taking place. I'm going to pray this prayer over here so that you won't notice what's going on over here. It's like a misdirection of prayer. And this temptation and these actions... Uh, that th- This is what comes to us when we invest in the economy of religion. The currency of outward achievement and status is exchanged for supposed favor before God and man in an attempt to bind ourselves back to God. The accumulation of religious goods and services becomes a priority. People, uh, rather than becoming ministry, uh, in this case widows, they become a commodity to be used and then discarded once they've served their purpose. Even prayer becomes less about any communication with God and and more a public payment towards a religious persona amongst those who are watching. I'm purchasing the appearance of righteousness with these things. And Jesus severely condemns this practice. What does he say? He says, they will receive the greater condemnation the idea here is abundant judgment. I'm guessing this morning that none of you ever want that said about you, right? Well, all of this comes right after Jesus has, has actually interacted with a scribe who he said was not far from the kingdom. You look just a few, few verses back up. Uh, Jesus, in his interaction with this guy, said, you know the law, uh, you, you, you know the law very well. But here's what the law is all about. The heartbeat of the law is love, the love of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, love is at the center of God, and this is what keeps you near to the kingdom. But the religious leaders here that Jesus is talking about, instead of helping others and loving them, they are harming them. Instead of loving God, you're really loving yourself. And what's worse and what is the object of this condemnation is that religion is being used both as the means and the justification for their harm. You see the problem with that? The judgment that comes from that? And therefore, their judgment will be abundant. Their condemnation will be greater. You can think back, if you if you know the Old Testament, you can think of Ezekiel 34 and the way that, that God... Uh, uh, it feels about abusive shepherds amongst his people. You can think of chapter three, verse one of James, those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's because of these things, these responsibilities that come along with that role. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is warning uh, that it's consistent with all of scripture. But the just irony of all of this is that they thought that they were gaining great spiritual standing And wealth, that's what they thought. But the economy of religion leaves them spiritually bankrupt. And that's the difference. Friends, I wonder if you've been investing in the economy of religion. Amassing a a portfolio of religious goods and services. Where instead of actually binding yourself back to God, which can only come through the cross, you're binding yourself to sin through Self-serving practices. And, and listen, this is sneaky stuff. I, I mean, I, I don't see anybody here wearing white robes this morning, you know, long flowing robes, good, good fashion choice, nice, nice move this morning. I, I don't know that when you greet each other, when you come in, you have some high and lofty greeting for one another. Are you demanding that of other people, you know, when they come to your home for small group or anything like I, I doubt that's going on. Um, re- religious pride doesn't always appear that way in our culture. In fact, it, when sin can't find the light of day in your own life, it goes underground in your heart, kind of to the black market. And it, and it comes out in different ways that's, that's just sneaky, like through humble brag or complaining, or self-pity, trying, trying to get attention on yourself through those types of things. It, it comes out in seeing busyness, in, particularly in church ministry, as great achievement. Look how busy I am. Perhaps you love to volunteer, but maybe you're less inclined to make yourself available for those ministries or opportunities that are less visible. This is the kind of deceitful pride that comes out in placing too high a value or worth on things like how many books you've read or how many degrees you have or showing out about how much money you give or how much time you give or how you give those things, not even just an amount. I serve in this ministry. Oh, but you serve in that ministry. Look what I do over here. That's how we justify that. Or even in a very underhanded way, letting people know just how much you've suffered this week in the name of Jesus. And we see suffering sometimes as a chance to gain standing rather than to even give glory to God. Friends, it's sneaky and it's rotten to the core because we're glory hounds. We, we want it all for ourselves, don't we? I mean, you can feel it, I feel it. Uh, but when we stand before God, It's worthless. It's worthless. Jesus would say those things don't have any value as currency in my kingdom. Oh, they might be good things for sure. Prayers, yes, you should pray. Books, you should read some. Education, get as much as you can. Generosity, absolutely. Ministry, yes, you should be serving. You should be serving together. But as far as purchase power goes in Jesus's kingdom, you're gonna have to cash those checks somewhere else. But this speaks a word to guys like me in pastoral ministry, other pastors here this morning, elders, maybe even small group leaders. If you serve in any leadership capacity, Jesus isn't just condemning the man on the street. He's condemning the religious leaders. And so as the guy who's tasked to preach this morning, that's preaching this passage, I pray that this doesn't fall on deaf ears or a hard heart or a deceived heart. We want to pray and be held accountable that our prayers are for the glory of God and not for the uplifting of man to gain favor in front of those who are listening. We want to be led away from the temptation to preach or to sing or to lead in any way that is attempting to gain favor or impress. And so would you pray that? Would you commit to pray that for your pastors, for your elders, for for your church leaders in whatever capacity, that God would lead us away from that way of thinking in that way of the trajectory of our heart and towards him, away from that kind of evil. So like the scribes, when we invest in the economy of religion, friends, we are spiritually bankrupt. And so that leaves us with the question, have you been investing in this type of economy? Well, after this warning and condemnation, Jesus turns his attention to, to people watching And he's going to teach a lesson now. And as we've seen this example, this warning in the economy of religion, based on outward achievement at the expense of others, eternally bankrupt, now we're going to see an example of the economy of the gospel in this poor widow in verses 41 through 44. The economy of the gospel. So here's the scene. Jesus is done interacting with all of these religious leaders he's he's been in the temple all day you can look back to chapter 11 verse 27 and see when he would entered the temple and so this entire chapter this whole section is Jesus one day in the temple and he might be tired he's going to go sit down and he sits down opposite the treasury where everyone came to drop off their offerings Uh, likely monetary but sometimes it would be other valuable items The temple primarily was a place where people would come and sacrifice and worship. That was the main focus. But a secondary focus, not far behind those, was that the temple was a depository for for great sums of wealth. Um, And and so the priests, in their role, they were not just the the priests of the law. uh, They were also kind of like accountants, some of them. People would come to make sacrifices, but they would also give their offerings to make donations of money or other valuables. Um, and with that came a lot of scandalous practices. You remember when Jesus turned over the money changers table in the temple, all of this kind of thing was going on. Um, so Jesus sits down to observe all of this and, and just doing some people watching. Now, how many of you like to people watch? A few of you, everybody else, I know it's true. You just like, everybody does it. Whether, whether you're at the park, uh, whether you're at the airport, uh, maybe you go on vacation, you sit at the beach, which would be a great place to be today, and you just watch people go by. And we kind of make up stories in our head about, wow, look at that family. It happens to me all the time. Look at that family. You know how many kids they have? Yeah, we can't even go out in public. People make comments all the time. It's totally fine. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, we make up these stories in our heads about, about people as, as where they've been or where they're from. And, and Jesus, they're, they're sitting down, and this widow comes up and she's going to give her offering. She comes up to put money in the collection box, which likely would have been a series of large chests uh, that, that would have had a funnel on it in the shape of a ram's horn or a shofar. If you're familiar with uh, Jewish culture, that was a symbol of victory. Uh, and so they would have put the their coins in this ram's horn, and it would have trickled down into the box, and you, it would have been probably very loud, kind of like when you go to the, the grocery store and pour your money into one of those change machines, and you know everybody's like, wow, somebody's got a lot of pennies. Um, anyway, so there would have been a lot of noise going on, and it would have been noticeable if somebody had put a lot of money in. It also would have been very noticeable if somebody didn't put in very much at all, because it didn't make much noise. It would have been quite the contrast. So here comes this widow, and she puts in two copper coins, now, the ESV translates this value to be about a penny's worth, uh, probably something someone gave her out of benevolence. And and scholars have tried over the years to really uh, evaluate exactly how much money this was. It was probably actually a little bit more than a penny. Um, a lot of times in the New Testament, we hear money measured in terms of a day's wage or a denarius, if you're familiar with that. Um, this would have been about a a one-sixty-fourth of a denarius, one-sixty-fourth of a a, a day's wage. And so in our economy, if you took a 350 hourly wage, which is a very low wage, but maybe someone who works on tips or something like that, and for eight hours of work, this would have been about 50 cents, 50 cents. Maybe she could buy something to eat with that, maybe. But instead of using it for herself, we read that she put it in the treasury of the temple as an offering to the Lord. Now, was she one of these widows that Jesus had previously referred to, being taken advantage of by the scribes? We don't we don't know. We don't know actually much about her, um, but we know that she was because she was a widow, she was dependent, and she was vulnerable. But Jesus, never missing an opportunity to teach, he calls his disciples over, hey guys, look at this. This poor widow has put in more than all of those contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Now here in this lesson, Jesus once more redefines for us our human expectations. And what is he redefining? He's redefining the meaning of the word more. Because by everyone else's standards, Jesus was wrong. Jesus was wrong. She put in a penny or maybe 50 cents, a child's allowance. These others were putting in large sums, maybe more than she would earn in a year or 10 years or maybe even a lifetime, more. Jesus, come come on, Jesus. Were we're, we talking about the same woman here? Did we see the same thing? No, that's just it. They didn't see the same thing. Jesus saw something that only he had the eyes to see, and he is opening the disciples' eyes to see what following him really looks like. And he teaches them about the economy of the gospel, an economy that is based on Jesus' definition of more. The economy of Jesus' kingdom, the economy of the gospel, isn't based on rich or poor, the haves and the have-nots. Jesus isn't condemning the rich people here for being rich, and he's not elevating the poor widow simply for being poor. There's no prosperity gospel here, and there's no poverty gospel here, as though somehow one socioeconomic category or standing is more or less holy than another. But the description here by Mark is meant to illustrate devotion and sacrifice from the seemingly insignificant gift of the widow. The actual monetary value of her gift is is quite negligible, especially in um, financial terms. It's unworthy to be compared to the giving totals of the wealthy donors as it has really no visible significance, particularly when you contrast that with the outward religiosity of the scribes. What could she contribute to their ministry anyway? But the exchange rate of eternity looks a little bit different, doesn't it? To quote James Edwards, he says, that which made no difference in the books of the temple is immortalized in the book of life. The irony of Jesus' word, use of the word more here is powerful. Everything about this woman would have not been considered more. It would have been considered what? Less right? Particularly in comparison with the scribes and the wealthy crowds. For Jesus, though, the value of the gift is not in the amount given, but the cost to the giver. In the temple on this day, others gave what they could spare, but this poor widow spared nothing. And the focus by Mark of, of giving all that she had is the bed, bedrock truth of the gospel, the first words that Jesus uh, speaks in, in God, Mark's gospel in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. His second words in verse, chapter 1, verse 17, Mark records him saying, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And here we are. That was the beginning. Here we are at the end of Jesus' public ministry where it began with the call to repent and believe the gospel, this call to come follow me is now fulfilled as his ministry concludes in the giving of two copper coins as a symbol of an undivided heart. And that's what Jesus is after. Jesus doesn't call us to follow him with only a fraction or percentage of our lives. In calling the disciples over to teach them from the example of the widow, Jesus is revealing her, this poor widow, to be a model for them in their own discipleship. No gift, whether of money, time, or talent, is too insignificant when given in response to Jesus' call on your life. And what might look like a great gift in reality might be very little in comparison with what someone could give. Because Jesus isn't showing the disciples this example or showing us as a formula to give a certain percentage unless that certain percentage is 100%. To quote Jamie Munson, the amount of money itself is merely a prop on the stage of God's story to reveal the heart of the steward. Jesus isn't after part of your life. He's after all of you. He doesn't call for bits and pieces of you when you have a little bit extra left over. He calls you to follow him first and with everything that you have, all of your resources, all of your gifts, all of your talents, all of your time, yes, even your money is available to be used by him. And this isn't the first time that Jesus has made this call. Uh, Another famous example, just a few chapters prior, in Mark 10, a young man, often referred to as the rich young ruler, comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he goes on to give this list of all of his accomplishments. I've kept all of the commandments since my youth. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go and sell 10% of all that you have. Give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now you're shaking your head. I missed something, right? No, that's not what Jesus said. Because what Jesus was doing was unveiling the economy of the gospel and his kingdom and drawing people away from the economy of religion. So he didn't say to that rich young man, go and sell 10% of what you said. He said, go and sell all and come follow me. You see, this widow gave more because she gave all. Even in her poverty, the widow's giving of everything she had is a true fulfillment of the call to follow Jesus by losing one's life. Mark 8, 34 through 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What are you withholding from Jesus? He asks for it all, and He means all. Are you abundantly giving out of your abundance? Because let's face it, there will always be people that have more than you. There will always be people that have less than you. And so we need to stop playing the comparison game. No one wins. We need to stop playing the percentage game. Because when everyone is giving everything that they have, there is no comparison. And, I, and I'm not here this morning to give you an outline of how much you should give based on a percentage Uh, Some of us want a percentage. We desire a percentage. We like structure. It helps us with our discipline. That's true, and that's good, and that's okay. But some of us want a percentage if we're honest because we want to know what our ceiling is, what our cutoff quota is, so that then I can give up to this amount so God will be happy with me, and then I can do whatever I want with the rest. Whether that's money or otherwise, that's the way we like to view it. Our percentage becomes just another indicator of our heart, that we're investing maybe in the wrong economy. And the scripture is challenging us this morning to conform ourselves, not to a pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds to live and thrive within the economy, the economy of the eternal gospel, an economy that is based on giving rather than taking. And so if you're looking for a certain percentage that you should give that belongs to God, it might be that you're looking for a loophole Or a religious box to check so that you can do whatever you want with whatever is left. Or maybe that's if there is anything left, then I will give it. And that will belong to God. Of course, again, we have those principles and they're helpful. But we need to be developing patterns of generosity and sacrifice that begin with a heart transformed by the gospel. Because Jesus here is about to leave the temple, as I've said. He's about to conclude his public ministry. And where is he going? He's going to a criminal's cross, which will be the emphasis in the next couple of weeks. And as it is every Sunday, he's about to go to this cross and give part of his life. No, no, no. He's going to give all of his life in exchange for yours. And this is the foundation of the economy of the gospel. The economy of religion is meant to use the currency of religious goods and services and outward appearances as means of righteousness to buy our way back into the eternal favor of God. But the economy of the gospel says that your righteousness and my righteousness is wrecked. It's tainted with sin. It has no value. That bank account is empty. You need someone else to make a deposit on your behalf with acceptable currency. So on the cross, Jesus died to cancel the debt that you owed, that your religion can't repay. You can't bind yourself back to God. And instead of buying our way back to God with our own merit, Jesus on the cross with his blood bought us back to himself, to the father for his glory And for our good, he was the one raised to new life in order to make that deposit of eternal righteousness on our behalf. So when you repent, when you believe the gospel, your debts are canceled, yes, but your eternal bank account goes from eternally in the red, empty of your own merit to eternally in the black, full of the only acceptable currency before the throne of God. And that is Jesus' righteousness. And it's counted to you because of the cross. The economy of religion is based on outward achievement. The economy of the gospel is based on Jesus' completed achievement. The economy of religion, in this economy, payment is made at the expense of others. In the economy of the gospel, the full expense is paid by Jesus alone. The result of living by the economy of religion is eternal judgment, abundant judgment like the scribes. The result of living within the economy of the gospel is just the opposite. It's eternal and abundant life. And so what does this all mean? Well, we we sung about it earlier. It means freedom. Freedom from the penalty of sin. Freedom from the religious performance trap. How many of you are exhausted of that? Free from the the grip that your possessions can have on you. I like the way John Foreman says it in one of his songs. He says, We possess our possessions, then they possess us. But in the economy of the gospel, just like the disciples, we learn to see with different eyes. We learn to see what Jesus sees. And we give the way that Jesus gave. Rather than coveting a comfortable Western standard of living, we cultivate humble appreciation and generosity towards God and towards others. And so rather than chasing greedy gain, we live in gratitude of grace. And to quote Eric once and again, the true spiritual halves view the riches of God's grace as a profound motivator Every opportunity to give becomes an opportunity to demonstrate and share from the endless supply of our truest and most valuable possession, the generosity, goodness, and good news of Jesus. You see, a follower of Jesus makes all of his or her possessions and resources available to be used in the economy of the gospel. Even if you have very little in the eyes of the world, you still have much to give. And a life transformed by the gospel it doesn't ask how much I can keep, but asks indeed how much can I give? Nothing is withheld. And so maybe this morning you adhere to the to the 10% outline for giving. That's fine. But what are you doing with the other 90%? Does that not also belong to God as well? Are we somehow less accountable uh, for what we do with what we've been given? What about your time and other resources? Time's probably your most valuable commodity. What about your home? How are you opening your home to your neighbors? How are you going into your neighbor's home, making time for them so that they might see the gospel? I wonder what conversations about your budget and your calendar need to happen at lunch just as we leave here in a few moments. How are you budgeting your free time to make a difference for the gospel? These are all questions that we're driven to ask when we reorder our answers when Jesus redefines more in our lives. And so that's where we'll we'll conclude this morning. How is Jesus warning? How is his lesson shining a light this morning in your heart as you have and are accepting the call to follow him and live within this gospel framework in the economy of his kingdom? Let's pray about those things together as we conclude. Father, we are grateful for our time to be together this morning. Thank you for the truth and sufficiency of your word. Thank you for the great example of this widow who was following you with all that she had by giving everything. Lord, I'm grateful for this picture of the gospel and the economy of the gospel and what it means to serve and follow you. Lord, would you protect us this morning from... Investing in the economy of religion that really doesn't buy us anything except judgment. Lord, and if there's someone here this morning who is far from you and has been attempting on their own in some way to bind themselves back to you through various practices apart from Christ, would you call them to yourself this morning? Would you give them the gift of repentance and faith that they might believe and be transformed? by the risen Savior. Lord, for those who are following Jesus, would you continue to urge us to bring us along in Christ-likeness so that we might have our lives shaped by your definition of more, that we might withhold nothing when it comes to following you, counting everything as loss, that we might gain Christ. Thank you that you've purchased us with this great sacrifice of your son. And now as we sing, Lord, I pray that you would stir up in us uh, affection for you as we respond, knowing that our worth is in the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.